Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. This episode, we're going to be talking about the 1952 film, The Quiet Man, directed by John Ford. And I am honored to welcome to the show, Caitlin Kennedy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. It's so great to be talking about one of my favorite films. Yeah. So tell people a little bit about who you are and what you have going on. Absolutely. Okay. So my name is Caitlin Kennedy. I am a freelance film critic and feature writer based in Austin, Texas. Uh, You can find my work little bit everywhere. Um, I work with Film Inquiry and Nightmarish Conjurings. I also have some pieces up on Birth Movies, Death, The Mary Sue. My focus is primarily gender and horror, but I love film, have always loved film. And as far as what I've got going on, just writing out this quarantine and taking in as many movies as possible. Yeah. How is that going for you? I feel like that's been obviously kind of a running theme whenever I, with new, when I were a new guest on the show, just like, how are you dealing, especially you know, being a movie critic with not really major new releases, at least in theaters. I'm I'm very lucky in that I have partnerships with uh, Shudder and Netflix and a couple of other um, studios that are distributing new films at this time. So I am keeping busy with remote screeners, but I miss the experience of being in a movie theater so much. Actually, yesterday we were having a little home game night and in the background, we had the no talking PSAs from the Alamo Draft House playing in the background. Nice. Because I just miss so much the experience of being in a movie theater. And it's just really, you know, it's a shame that uh, studios are having to adjust in this way. We could shoot a whole other podcast on what the implications of this are. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, I have been very lucky. Still lots of new content that I'm getting to comment on. That's good. I mean, it, thank, thankfully, we're in the age of streaming where at least there are things like not only available to watch, but as you said, new projects still being released. I can only imagine like if this had happened before the age where the Internet is where it is, where it's where it is now, where without Netflix and you know uh, uh, Amazon Prime and like you said, Shutter and and all those, uh, you know, channels and distributors and streaming providers like without having you know with just having like the basic basic cable reruns and that kind of thing how boring that would get for for people like us that are so focused on consuming and then you know covering that content mm-hmm. well and you know kind of bringing things back around to our you know topical film today is that i feel like this is such a great moment for classic films yes absolutely. because so many of us are caught at home So many of us are trying to find new things that haven't been explored before. There are not as many new releases to distract us. And so that's why I was so excited to come on here and talk about The Quiet Man with you, because it is absolutely one of my favorite classic films. To me, it's kind of a quintessential classic film. It has everything. So very excited to hopefully expose people to this film. Yeah, that was when we were, you know, uh, you're very active on film Twitter. That's actually how we got connected for this episode. And uh, when you pitched to me a bunch of the different movies that you had in mind, I, I immediately was like, well, I haven't seen that one. So this is a good opportunity for me to to catch up on that as well. Uh, just because, as you said, it, it's just kind of a good opportunity right now. Everything is sort of paused. And that's usually my go-to excuse for for catching up with classic films. It's like, well, I'm too busy trying to see what's happening now, like week to week. And, you know, as, as it stands, it's been, uh, what is it, a couple months since I've seen anything. To the point that, like, last week, someone on Twitter posted the, uh, because we don't have any Alamo Draft House over here in, in Florida. It's just, I, AMC is usually where I go. They posted, like, the pre-roll for AMC. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting, getting nostalgic already. It's been two months, but it feels mm. like it's been years since things were normal. It's insane how, how relative time is in that regard. What was the last film you saw in theaters before everything shut down? Yeah, that's that's the question that's all over film Twitter these days, I've noticed. Um, Birds of Prey, I, it's my second time. I went to see Invisible Man, and I'd wanted to you know throw some extra support towards Birds of Prey because I actually do really like that movie. And so I did Invisible Man and then Birds of Prey kind of as a double bill, and that was the last thing I saw. Like, uh, I don't know, probably the end of February, like just when things were starting to percolate here in the U.S., where 
you know, was like, well, maybe don't want to go see movies for a while. Maybe it's starting to get sketchy. And then it was like locked down, everything closed and everything. Mm -hmm. So yeah. What about you? So the last time that I was in a movie theater was for the press screening of the Invisible Man. And I had like a brief lull period after those reviews had come out where I wasn't taking on any new work. And then the week that it all shut down in Austin, I had Antlers and Mulan lined up, you know, one press screening after the other. And like two days before I was supposed to see those movies, boom, shuts down. Oh, boy. So I feel very lucky because The Invisible Man is one of my favorite films of the year. Yeah, it is probably my. It probably is my. Go out on thing. Yeah, yeah, but I have been mourning Antlers ever since. I was so excited about Antlers, and um, just in the communication that I've had, I'm not quite sure when I'm going to see it. Yeah, I was going to say Mulan is at least we. You know, it's Disney, so they'll make sure it comes out eventually. But Antlers is a little. Yeah, that's un- that unfortunately might be one of those that they're just like, hey, straight to streaming somewhere. Which would be awful. Yeah, exactly. I know. I mean, I remember, and this is obviously a way different movie, but when everybody was saying, oh, is Wonder- Warner Brothers going to send Wonder Woman straight to streaming? I'm like, if you do that, that's that's the end. Like, the, the that's the end of movie theaters is kind of the way I read that. Because the movie theaters are existing as long as they are, at least in the U.S. I know overseas, I, I saw a report that they're overseas, they're actually doing okay. They're doing fine. It's here where we're starting to get lazy about going to the theaters more so. Um, they're going to, their last legs will be the the big tent poles. So if you start releasing tent poles to streaming, that's kind of the death knell. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So all that's, all that pleasant stuff <laughs> happening. Um so uh, let's uh, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer for The Quiet Man right now. I'd like to tell you about The Quiet Man. He's John Wayne in a picture you'll soon be cheering. It's the story of Sean Thornton, a right intended man who came from America to forget his past in Innisfree. There he met a fiery red-headed lass, and the village marriage broker went to work. That's a pretty bonnet you have on. Bonnet? Don't you be talking to me about bonnets. After leaving mine stuck up there like a... Easy now. Have the good manners not to hit the man until he's your husband and until he'll hit you back. Then her bully of a brother, Red Will Danaher, refused to pay her rightful dowry. <laughs> There'll be no locks or bolts between us, Mary-Kate, except those in your own mercenary little heart. left him to go to Dublin, but he caught her at the station and brought her back with the whole town watching him do it. That was a little bit of the trailer for The Quiet Man, directed by John Ford from 1952. So, Caitlin, what is your history with this film, uh, which, as I said, I hadn't seen? So when did you first see it and why did you want to talk about it today? Oh, man, that how much time do you have? Because that is an incredibly (laughs) layered answer. So my, there are a few moments that I think of as like my foundation of loving cinema. And a huge part of that was watching John Wayne films with my dad. My dad is a huge John Wayne fan. And so I grew up on Westerns and a huge fan of the Duke. I actually have a life-size John Wayne cut out in the, uh, in the room with me right now. Big, big fan. And so The Quiet Man was just one of those early films that, uh, that I was exposed to just through watching John Wayne films with my dad. And what I love about The Quiet Man is, you know, it's not a Western, but I feel like you're getting some of the very best from John Wayne. And then in the early 2010s, we went on a family vacation to visit like the region of Scotland where my family came from. And I can relate so much to that kind of a awestruck feeling of standing on a piece of land and being like, whoa, you know, this is where I came from. This is part of me you know that now that I'm a culture critic and film critic and I've taken the film classes and I have a more sophisticated lens for viewing the film you know westerns are sort of an inherently problematic genre mm-hmm. you know especially the shoot 'em up cowboys versus Indians westerns that John Wayne is known for and so what I appreciate about The Quiet Man is that it's a great example of classic cinema that you're still able to enjoy without kind of having that voice in the back of your head saying, well, it was a different time. It's not like watching Gone with the Wind. <laughs> right, right. You know, because 
those uh, those social cultural threads don't necessarily ruin a movie. I would never say that, but it's just nice to still be able to enjoy a film the same way you did before you developed a more critical eye. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree with you as far as classic movies. It's it's really rough. Uh, going back and watching even movies from like the nineties or early two thousands, like you go back and watch them now and you're like, not, not fly in the, in this current, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, woke time, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> culturally sensitive, uh, that we're trying to be now and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think you don't really see a whole lot of that in here. In fact, in, in a lot of ways, I feel like the, the depiction of, uh, Mary Kate and in the depiction of women in general in here is pretty strong and is aged, you know, overall pretty well. I mean, she's kind of a modern woman mentality in a time where that was not the norm and trying to kind of struggle against her family's customs. Oh, absolutely. Um, but also the, uh, oh, I'm trying to find like the perfect succinct way so that I don't go on another tangent. You know, what I love about Mary Kate in this film is that, you know, she is a very modern woman but she does have traditions that are important to her. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I really appreciate is that she, what's really important to her is making her love interest, you know, John Wayne understand that or played by John Wayne. (laughs) (laughs) He might as well Um, be John Wayne. Yeah, it's John Wayne. (laughs) Um, But making him understand like, Hey, you know, I know this doesn't matter to you and maybe it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but it matters to me. And therefore, I need you to be on board, you know, which is a point of contention for a lot of the film. But that that final big scene mm-hmm. where they, uh, you know, where they stand and kind of prove their point together. Then she's like, all right, you've heard me. And, you know, now now we're good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's it's in a way it's the movie's kind of just a, it's more of a fish out of water com- comedy. I'm using the words comedy kind of loosely because it's not like a laugh fest per se, even though there is some of that in here. Um, but it is, yeah, kind of taking that cultural clash to uh, to the next level. And and I, I don't know. I really like having never watched this movie before. I, I it's it's really easy to get swept up in in the film, not only with the storytelling, but also it's Oscar winning cinematography. And, uh, you know, John Ford won best director for this, his fourth one, things like that. So I feel like it's, it's kind of that I'm thinking the image that sticks out in my mind actually just now is the, the big kiss with the, in the house with the wind coming through. And like, it's just so, it, it just has that old Hollywood feel that you don't, you just, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but you just don't really get anymore nowadays. It's just oh yeah. That, they don't make them like this. Yeah. They exactly. don't make them like this anymore. And it's, it is, it's so, um, it's so cinematic, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, that bouncing kind of Irish jig theme throughout the score, you know, the, uh, the kissing in the rain moments, the, you know, the comedy of their courtship. It's just, it touches on all of those things that you just love to see in a movie, but it's not, uh, it's not pretentious. It's not overly complicated. It is an extremely simple story, but just told in the just most beautiful way that you could put it together. Right. And it's a classic storytelling trope of, uh, you know, simple story, complex characters and the dynamics between between uh, Sean and Mary Kate and uh, Will or Red or Squire. He's got multiple. He's a man of many names in this movie. Um, uh, it's just the way that that evolves over the course of the film. It's just that's that's the hook it's not um it's not like an overly complicated plot and i think that's you know to the film's great benefit as you as you're mentioning uh let's talk about the the two leads in here who are 100% carrying the movie and i from my research it seems like they they wanted to do this but the studio was sort of on on uh like made them sign and do a western first and that's where rio grande happened mhm with uh, with this obviously Wayne O'Hara and Ford, and then they reteamed for this. So what? I guess I was, this is kind of an obvious answer question, but it opens up to the performances themselves. What do you you know? Could anybody have played these roles? Anybody else have played Maureen O'Hara and John Wayne's roles in the way that they do here? God no, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, uh, Maureen O'Hara and John Wayne are one of those great Hollywood dream teams i mean uh through many of his westerns you know like rio grande the quiet man here mcclintock another fantastic film 
uh, later in both of their careers. They are just such a dynamic pair. And I mean, come on, you know, with Maureen O'Hara, especially, you know, who else other than that redheaded goddess do you stick out among that Irish countryside? I mean, she is just, you know, when I talk about like cinematic, just the beauty of the film, that's her too. Mm -hmm. I mean, she just so beautifully carries that space. And whenever you, there's, um, if you ever look at my Twitter feed, there's a GIF from the film or GIF, GIF. What's the protocol? I guess in this? it's GIF. I always think I, GIF, I GIF is peanut butter. GIF is uh, internet. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I don't accept GIF as the official. Yeah, I, I'm not into that. <laughs> but there's this great GIF from the scene where they're walking across the countryside and she takes off her hat, revealing that red hair. Mm-hmm. And that just, oh, that is one of those like perfect shots she is so beautiful and dynamic and just transport you like she transports you to that irish countryside yeah you, know, you kind of feel you feel for john wayne in that situation like how do you not be quite literally so seduced mm-hmm. by this landscape yeah and the fact that the movie uh, you know was made with technicolor obviously it's like the whole thing just everything really pops like every the visual style of this film is is very arresting in and of itself and it has that sort of classic old Hollywood. I keep mentioning old Hollywood, but I mean, it's 1952. It's like right in the heart of it. Um, just that classic look that older films, older classic films can have. And, uh, the juxtaposition I would loved between John Wayne and Marina Harris character, obviously John Wayne is John Wayne essentially. So he's super unaffected. And that's kind of the charm that he has is that he is just very, very chill constantly, no matter what, even when he's being threatened in a bar, uh, he's a quiet man. Yeah, he is a quiet man. Exactly. No, but he is, uh, he just had such presence without even saying anything. Like he's getting threatened and he's just standing there just like drinking it in and just like, okay, I'm, I'm not worried about this at all. Um, and the way that that plays out later, and we'll talk about obviously the flashback involving him, uh, his attitude and Maureen O'Hara, Mary Kate's, uh, it's just, it's just a perfect on-screen coupling, as you said, and just the way that their energies contrast and, and meld together. And, um, obviously I think Marina Hara carries a lot of the emotional crux of this film because Sean is, Sean, Sean Thornton is so quiet through a lot of it. And we don't, you know, it's kind of the unwrapping of his character and she's much more hard on your sleeve. And I think is that much more, uh, magnetic because of it. Well, and you have to give it to the time, you know, because even though we spoke on uh, Maureen O'Hara's Mary Kate being a very modern woman in her mm-hmm. space, you know, this is still the 1950s. Right. And we still have a expectation of our stoic, good looking leading men. And so, yeah, in a lot of ways, I love that. I love that Maureen O'Hara was given was given the agency to be so loudly emotional she plays a much more interesting leading lady and always does in all of their films together she's this really fiery character if you haven't seen mcclintock i highly recommend it mm-hmm. yeah absolutely it's it's also interesting too because this was considered kind of a risky film that's why they as you, you know as we said that's why they had to do rio grand first but it's also just john ford and john wayne like that's a that's a western combo this is a romantic comedy, essentially comedy drama. I would say it's kind of in the middle. Um, this is not even remotely a western. There's like there's like fist fights, and that's about it as as far as the violence is concerned. Uh, speak to you know how the the fact that this is it's this team on this story, how that makes it maybe uh, maybe come together a little more. I don't know cohesively. For me, and of course, I have no proof of this or ability to back this up. There are just some films that you get the impression that everybody is having a really good time. Mm-hmm. And that's very much the impression that I get from The Quiet Man is that seeing all of these actors kind of taking a step out of their traditional role, especially for John Wayne. I always recommend The Quiet Man when kind of giving a, a syllabus for essential John Wayne viewing because this is very different for him. This is very, very different. And I don't know, like it's, and John Wayne, you know, he, we've been talking a lot about Maureen O'Hara in this episode, but seeing John Wayne play such a wholesome hero Mm -hmm. and having him be kind of this 
you know, he's not, he's not a hard ass. He's quiet. And that's a really important distinction, you know, cause if you, if you take a character like, uh, Sean Thornton, Thornton and, uh, compare him to like Rooster Cogburn, two wildly different characters, but among John Wayne's most famous performances. And so to, to answer your question about those dynamics, kind of seeing that passion project earned, you know, doing the by the book Rio Grande, which is another great John Wayne film, but, you know, after doing Rio Grande and letting, giving everybody permission to, okay, like you've proven yourself here, you have carte blanche to make the film that you want. Um, the cinematography, especially, I really, I'm rambling now. I realize that (laughs) it's all good, but I just, I love it's so heartwarming to see everybody doing something different and clearly enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, I especially liked a lot of the, um, a lot of the supporting players, but Barry, Barry Fitzgerald as Flynn is kind of, I mean, he's just so much fun to watch as this character who on the, on the face of it seems, you know, I mean, he's essentially playing an Irish stereotype. He's just, drinking all the time and, you know, the super thick accent, the hats and all that stuff. And I, I feel like the movie kind of leans into the fact that the they, that making him the comic relief. And he just, I feel like he brings a lot to the movie. And, and, uh, I would say I was, I was going to say sort of as adds levity, but I mean, it is a comedy, but he just kind of brings a different energy to the film. What I enjoy so much about showing people this film for a first time is how much they connect with that character. Mm-hmm. Um, we watch this film in our household every St. Patrick's Day. It's the law. You serve an Irish whiskey and a Waterford <laughs> Crystal Black. Right. Sit back for the man. Um, but when I first showed this film to my partner, this was many, many moons ago when we were still sussing each other out. And I said, okay, let's see how he does with the quiet man. Because that really tells me everything I need to know about a man. The quiet man test, yeah. Exactly. Everybody knows it. <laughs> um, but seeing how seeing how people take in Barry Fitzgerald's character for the first time. It's such a fun character. And you're absolutely right that it's this, this levity, this comic relief. It is a little bit of a stereotype, but he's also the moral center Mm -hmm. of the film in a lot of ways. And just, just delightful. Another, um, another favorite character in this film for me is uh, father Lonergan played by Ward Bond. I grew up Catholic, so I find that portrayal of a priest fucking hilarious Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah there's a lot of uh i don't want to i was gonna say double dealing but it's definitely a lot of conspiracy going on with this group and i think it's i feel like that may have been the movie calls it out though but i feel like it may have been sort of controversial to have a a priest kind of complicit in in what's going on with uh, the the widow to lane and the whole sort of uh you know switcheroo on uh, on Danaher what are your what are your thoughts on the way that it kind of plays fast and loose and and with that and builds out the uh, the community of Innisfree because essentially Innisfree and its people are are a character in this film like very much so 100% I think uh, I think it just all goes back to the word fun mm-hmm. uh, what I love about the you know the fictional village of Innisfree is that it's a melting pot you know, you've got Catholics and Protestants, you've got people from all classes, you know, Sean Thornton is this, you know, American man, you know, entering a very classic space. And it's kind of a, you know, it's a timeless village. And I think that's what makes the film so easy to enjoy now is the humor and the way that these different characters all fit together. It's just something that can be loved at any time. I wanted to talk about Sean Thornton's obvious past as a, as a boxer. It's revealed about, I think midway through at a very key point in the film as well. Um, what do you think about that reveal when it happens and sort of it's the, the fact that he is such a mystery to viewers until that one brief flashback that kind of contextualizes everything we've seen up to this point. I think that it makes The Quiet Man one of the most interesting examples of masculinity in early Hollywood. You know, we we spoke earlier about how John Wayne is playing a quiet man. You know, a calm person, a chill person, a person who can stand up and fight but actively chooses not to. Um, Seeing... Are we doing spoilers right now? Yeah, it's it's a 1952 movie. I think it's spoiler. We're past the, the statute of limitations on spoilers. 
Okay, so for for the uninitiated, the the basic kind of synopsis of Sean Thornton's character is that he was born in Ireland. He grew up and lived in the U.S. for many years. He became a boxer, and then during a match, he accidentally kills his opponent, mm-hmm. um, causing him to run away from his past in the U.S. and return to seek out a better, more quiet life in Innisfree, the village where he was born. To see... Because, again, you know, you think about John Wayne and you think about action heroes of old Hollywood. And, you know, John Wayne, in terms of characters, has killed many people. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, between war movies and Westerns, you know, the man has a the man has a long list. What's so interesting about The Quiet Man is that I never feel that Sean Thornton is a less masculine or less heroic figure. But seeing kind of just putting Sean Thornton through a PTSD moment Mm -hmm. and showing that, that experience of, you know, grappling with that guilt, you know, having done everything that you were supposed to do, you know, but having it all go wrong, making a decision to be better in the future. That is such a, it's a unique performance of masculinity. It doesn't come up very often. Um, but it doesn't feel out of place, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that I makes. I can't think of anybody, even in the fifties, watching this movie and being like, "Dude, soft," right? Because he absolutely isn't. And I think that's part of what you get from casting John Wayne in that role, too. I think you know that's part of of why he is he feels so irreplaceable in this role is because simply by casting John Wayne, you're bringing all of that to it, so that he, the character, is able to not throw a punch. For until a significant point point uh, portion of the movie has already passed, and you already sort of assume, oh, this guy he's he's got a quiet strength about him because it's kind of imbued in him just by who John Wayne is and the legacy that he had already established at that point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's it's an interesting dynamic showing having him play this character who's basically his whole MO is not to not to get it, you know, wrapped up in violence and, and, you know, vowed, vowed to never fight again. And yet we get a, what like, it feels like an endless fist fight towards the end that, uh, the 15 minutes or whatever that is of the fist fight kind of going and then stopping and then going, which is again, kind of a classic, um, just like a classic, like comic thing. You know, you have a, you fight and then you're like, the way that happens in this movie, they, they sit down, they have a couple of drinks, and then they're back to the fighting again. It felt like, and I don't know if this was one of the one of the earlier examples of that, or if that had already been kind of a trope back in the day. But uh, I really, I really thought that was an interesting way to to an interesting and unexpected climax for a movie where the man is trying not to fight the whole time. That it really just kind of comes down to that in a way, you know, that it's, it's he's given he's basically has to choose between his love for Mary Kate. And getting, you know, kind of moving past his mistakes that that he's leaving behind. Well, it's a thesis statement of the entire film because it's not about fighting. It's what you're fighting for. Right. Right. If you swear, you know, you can swear off fighting and understand that it's, you know, a shallow and useless action. You know, but what is worth fighting for? You know, love and taking care of the people that are important to you and, you know, standing up for, you know, honor and What's right. And of course, that, that is approached in a very light and humorous way in this film. But it's a it's a damn good scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. The fact that he. Um, yeah, I just I, I really liked the relationship between the two of them. I I, I think that the fact that she opens the what I think it's a boiler of some kind at the end for him to throw the money in, I think is really key to show that that was kind of what she was that was the point she was trying to get him to. It wasn't necessarily that she even wanted the money per se. It was just like you said, it was the principle of, of him recognizing what, what he should be fighting for and, and when, when to be complacent and just be like, Oh, I don't care about it anyway. And shrug things off and when to, to I guess, plant your feet in the ground and, and draw a line essentially. Yeah. It goes back to that conversation that we were having at the, at the, at the beginning of this is that, you know, she's a very modern woman and tradition matters to her. And it matters to her that she is understood like, hey, this is who I am. This is where I come from. This is what's important to me. And if you're going to be my partner, if you're going to be my husband, you have to you have to take on what's important to me as being important to you as well. Mm-hmm. But it's also very um, it's also very modern that she knows she knows when to say enough. 
you know, she's not going to push him. She's not going to, you know, she doesn't go too far. She says, okay, we're on the same page. We're partners again. Right. Now let's go home. Right. It's establishing the power dynamic in the household as well, because early on, I feel like, I mean, it, it, for the most part, I think the gender roles and, and politics of this movie age pretty well. But I, there was that, there was the one scene where when they go into the home and he's like really aggressive with her. And I was even like, Jesus, <laughs> like take it down a notch, Sean. Um, you know, one of those scenes that, that didn't age particularly well. And then I think it's also just kind of the movie's way of, of establishing that in that situation, she feels powerless. She, she is, you know, she's carrying the shame and, and, her self-worth is so wrapped up in that, especially, you know, in these times, in this culture. And it's, I think it's, it really is contrasted at the end when, uh, when Dana, her comes over, <laughs> comes over to the house and she's like, Oh, take your shoes off. You know, it's like kind of like woman of the house, like on a more for 1952, at least equal footing with her husband. Yeah. It's, there's a, there's a really great article. I think it was from the New York Times. I will try to find it for you so you can include it in your show notes. Sure. But a, um, a culture critic over, I think it was the New York Times. Uh, we can correct this in post. <laughs> 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 um, but she commented on the gender dynamic and uh, Sean Thornton's aggression in that scene in particular. And I ponder it a lot, you know, just as a, as a critic that focuses in gender, especially. Those are always things that I think about. I think what makes that scene so important is it is also one of the few moments where you get a glimpse of that dark side of Sean Thornton. You see what he's running from. Mm -hmm. It kind of shows you like, this is how dark he can go. You see, you see what he would be if he had not resolved to kind of repent from that mistake and be better. And then at the same time, you see Mary Kate in really her only vulnerable moment in the film. She's very strong and she's very sure. And that scene kind of simultaneously brings them to their lowest moments. Mm-hmm. He's at his darkest, she's at her weakest moment. And and showing how that's all ego. You know, because her weakest moment, his darkest moment are all tied up in personal ego. And so the willingness to let that go on behalf of the other it's it's very hard to watch, and it, I agree with you. It's probably not part of the film that ages well, but I think it's so essential to see them at that point, so that everything to like everything that goes beyond that, you understand exactly how hard they're working for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't he doesn't know at that point how to how to moderate his emotions and his response to things. I think is, is kind of the key that. It's just, you know, he felt like he even says in the conversation about, you know, about the, the, the match late, late in the film talking about like, oh, I, you know, I went in there and I was going to murder him. And that's what I did that he, he goes, he doesn't, he doesn't know how to, how to turn it on and off or, or, or for lack of a better term. Like he's just, he's either in that mode or he's completely, he's completely alpha and very aggressive and very in your face about what he wants or he's completely just like, well, whatever, that's fine. We'll roll, we'll work around it. And I think it's, yeah, it's that's really the lesson that he has to take here. And it's, as you said, it is really a case of PTSD. Like he's carrying this burden on himself for, who knows? Do they even establish how many years it's been since since the, that match happened? I don't even think they do. I, uh, I have always just assumed that he got the hell out of Dodge shortly after. Okay. Yeah, I, I assume it's pretty recent. Well, then no, that then that's it. That that uh, the point stands even more so than I guess that yeah he is I, yeah yeah I think that's an interesting that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's I I always kind of it's really tricky for me sometimes to suss out when a scene like that happens if it's just me coming to it with. 2020 perspective, like, I guess that's a pun 2020 now, but 2020 hot perspective, uh, looking at something that was very much of its time, or if it does have a legitimate narrative purpose. And I think this, as you're saying, I think this probably is one of those rare instances where, no, it still holds up because that moment is based in character, not based on, 
you know, well, that's the way, that's how courtship was back then. Because I'm thinking of like, there's a lot of classic movies now. I'm thinking like movies like Rocky or Blade Runner, where there's like a, oh, the couple's getting together scene where it feels like consent is very much in question. Uh, and yet somehow they are happy together and it's all fine. Uh, like the next, like a moment later. And I, I think this, you know, the fact that that moment has consequences uh, for their relationship and that it's ultimately what they have to work through, I think validates his emotions in that in that scene in particular much more than you know than I guess I initially kind of considered well I mean it is 1952 mm-hmm. you know and that well yeah it is 1952 and so I'm not going to completely absolve of the quiet man you know just as there's a wonderful scene um with a broken bed following a wedding night it's not what you think it is but go <laughs> ahead and follow that you know go ahead and follow that joke um, you know, so it does play in those themes a little bit. And I really couldn't, I couldn't honestly tell you that it's not a little bit of both mm-hmm. with respect to their fight. But, um, like I said, at the outset, you know, this being a film that I appreciate being able to enjoy through a contemporary lens, you know, you can give it a very modern read and it works. Um, so yeah, I, I don't necessarily excuse the scene because I do, I think there's probably a fair bit of, let's just say it would be filmed differently in 2020. Right. Yeah. If someone was remaking that scene with the same character motivations and the same narrative goals, I'm sure it would come out looking a little differently, but it's refreshing to be able to look at such a strong relationship within a film and be able to see that moment, you know, they're big falling out Mm -hmm. and know that there is a ton of mutual respect and the desire to work at the relationship that comes out of that moment, you know, which makes it timeless in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's just, yeah, it's just hard sometimes to figure out how well something has aged because it feels like in older movies specifically that, that was the way he is in that scene. That was kind of almost the standard masculine persona that that was like you you almost like aggressed your way into a relationship with a woman that you liked until you wore her down and she was just like all right i guess whatever uh, fine <laughs> i'm powerless in this situation and uh and you're the the air quotes man and i feel like yeah and that that's just so common in this movie in a way kind of by the end of it sort of deconstructs it slightly by having uh, you know the their relationships kind of evolve Somewhat beyond that. Again, of course, as you were saying, it's still 1952. So there's only so much and only so much progress they're willing to to put on the, on this relationship. But I think that it, it does it does um, fit better than a lot of relationships at this time on screen. I think also one of the notable aspects of this film too is kind of the 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 way it captures the Irish not only countryside but also. The culture. I mean, obviously, this is this was one of the few. It's not really obvious. It wasn't obvious to me. Uh, one of the few Hollywood movies that kind of has the Gaelic language in it, and they actually per- capture that on screen. And I understand that was kind of a, a big deal for the time. Uh, oh, yes. So speak to that for a second. Like, what? Why? What makes that so significant? Uh, as I guess, as far as representation is concerned. Well, this film did extremely well in the UK. Um, it was a very successful film just overall by those standards, but it did very well in the UK. And speaking to, you know, again, kind of circling back to the beginning of the conversation, you know, my heritage is Celtic. And when you go over there, whenever you visit uh, Scotland and Ireland, Ireland, Ireland being what we're talking about here, uh, what really struck me is that they do have the traditional Gaelic listed under the English in a lot of those towns. Mm-hmm. So the farther you get away from the big uh, metropolitan centers like Dublin, you start seeing that. And so in terms of just significance and representation, um, you know, if you look at the history of the Irish people and especially the history of the Irish people in the United States, there is a it's a bit of a tumultuous relationship. And so, yeah, really, um, really unusual and really interesting to see a film that you know, ultimately is an American style love story. You know, it's very much a Hollywood film, Mm -hmm. but it totally blankets itself in the beauty and in the culture, you know, like you said. So 
yeah, just really, really, really cool to see that, especially so early um, in a moment like that, you know, with John Wayne being a big star and letting Maureen O'Hara lean into that. Just a really cool moment for Ireland and cinema. And there's also moments where they're, you know, where they're singing um, something like, you know, traditional Irish songs and, and the score is very informed by the culture itself. I mean, it feels like it's making more, it's, it's doing a lot more than just paying lip service to the Irish people and actually trying to do a, I mean, as you know, as you, as you sort of alluded to Hollywoodized version of that culture, but at least, at least trying to capture it more so than just saying, by the way, this, you know, this map painting behind us is supposed to mean we're in Ireland. You know, they actually went to Ireland to film a lot of the ex- the exterior scenes and all that. So I, I think that that, that kind of commitment to the production, it, it comes across on screen. And I think it makes it that much more, you know, as you were saying earlier, cinematic. Yeah, this is a, I mean, it's a postcard for Ireland, really, yeah, in the best really way is. possible. It really is. It kind of it reminds me of, you know, and then that was very common back in the day. Like, I feel like you see a lot of movies set in, in uh, you know, in European countries specifically. And, and it almost feels like was, was the country itself, did they like, were they investing in the movie? You know, I'm thinking of something like Roman Holiday, which is so much kind of that sort of deal, sort of deal for Rome itself. Uh, it's, it's kind of a almost, you know, travelogue of a, of a movie in a way. I feel like there's a lot of things we've talked about kind of already other than the major, you know, major elements of the plot itself. Is there anything in specific you wanted to talk about, Caitlin? I want to talk about what people found negative in this film whenever it came out. Okay. What did, well, other than, yeah, what did people find negative about this film? Was it the Irish representation? Did they, that run people the wrong way? I would imagine that might've been controversial. Sweet. That was the big criticism. Yeah. That sounds like, that sounds like traditional John Ford fans. I mean, yeah. Like what I find so funny about this film, um, because, you know, I'm always brushing up on my quiet man. (laughs) <laughs> trivia and this film was incredibly successful and that's that's a great triumph for john ford you know especially having to prove themselves by producing rio grande first rio grande is not as popular as the quiet man mm-hmm. um very few people have seen it it is a good one but not as good as quiet um so very well received you know especially in the uk uh hollywood critics loved this film but there was one there was one critic based out of new york when the film first came out and he just wrote this. I will try to find it and link it to you. Uh, he wrote this scorch the earth review about how sweet and simplistic and, you know, basically that it was just a dopey romance. And I love that because he's absolutely right. <laughs> like it, it, it is a very sweet, very wholesome film. You know, we've talked about this at length. There is no, it is not pretentious. It does not try to do too much. Um, you know, any finer themes are entirely for you to read into. It's not shoved in your face. This is as basic a love story as you could hope for. Um, and I I can so appreciate, again, talking about problematic, you know, cinema. This is so far outside of that, that even at the time, under a critical eye, the worst thing that people could say was, eh, too sweet. <laughs> that's, that's too much of a, too, too nice a movie, yeah. Too nice, <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I think that that earnestness is, is as you, you know, as you're saying, I think that's part of what makes it so charming. The fact that you have these two, these two lead actors that just ooze that charisma on screen and they don't, they don't really have to do much to make it compelling to watch. And here they are really giving, you know, very dedicated performances as these characters. Um, so not only do you have that earnestness, it's just, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's just very, it's just very focused too on that story. Like if they had complicated this with a lot of different subplots and, and you know, thrown in, uh, um, thrown in like a love triangle, which is really the third part of the love triangle is her brother in a way, you know, just trying to, trying to moderate that relationship and holding all the, all the cards and, and as far as her dowry is concerned and all of that, I think it's, it, it makes it a much stronger film because you're able to really, delve into that relationship and let it take up the majority of the runtime rather than bogging it down with, Oh, he's got a checkered pass. I mean, he does have a checkered pass, but you know what I mean? But really savor it, really focusing on that relationship, I think is to the film's uh, benefit. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So it's funny that that I mean I think you still get movies like that now that come out and people are like this is too too saccharine. Although now in that the context, I think that a lot of more modern movies that are that are accused of that are probably more accurate. I don't know if this is well. Okay, but let me ask you this: Yeah, when was the last time that a movie was too saccharine and lacking in complexity, but was also as good right, as the exactly. Quiet? That I think that was kind of the That's thought that I was trying to get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The, the the production values and everything involved here is just it, it feels awfully dismissive to be like, oh, it's too lovely. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, I guess. Yeah, it is lovely. But why is that a negative? Um, the, the, Except the gift. Except the gift that it is. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, to John Ford and the Johns Ford and Wayne, to their credit, they wanted to do something different. They wanted to. They're like. There's only so many, you know, Westerns they could do in a row, I'm assuming. And then before they just want to like, all right, let's do something different. Let's tell a different kind of story. It's And John Wayne, you know, was awfully typecast as that kind of character. I'm sure he wanted a break from doing that as well. You know, it's not, it's, yeah. I mean, it's like, it, it sounds just like people at the time expecting a certain thing, hearing about the new John Ford, John Wayne film and, uh, you know, getting this instead, uh, just expectation setting basically is, was the problem there. It sounds like. If your worst problem is that you are too lovely, I think you're doing a lot right. Yeah. Yeah. Marino Hera has like a lot of problems then I guess is, is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially yeah, in this movie, she's just, um, I, I, which of, who do you think is the, the best performance in this film? I, I would easily say, uh, Marino Hera. Oh, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think, I think it's an obvious choice, and so I'm going to try to be. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to lean into that pretentious critic side. I, I think the best performance is the widow to land. Okay, that is a fantastic side performance. Um, that character, because she's another modern woman. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we've been talking at length about Maureen O'Hara and Mary Kate being a modern woman. The widow to land, you know, wealthy landowner woman, you know, she is hopelessly in love with Squire Danaher, but not to the point that she's going to allow him to push her around. She is, there's an early scene in the film where, uh, where the Squire Danaher kind of lets on that he has been discussing her in the local pub. She is not down for that. And so she's like, all right, you know, I'm in love with you, but fuck you. I'm going to sell my land to, <laughs> to John Wayne, you know. She, her performance is a lot more understated than Maureen O'Hara's, but has the same thread of strength and demanding understanding from your mate. It's also the sort of empowerment that Mary Kate aspires to and is feels, you know, is unable to get to without, uh, without her brother's consent and, and uh, kind of let, letting her off off the leash, so to speak, at that point. And again, that's mm-hmm. just a, sim- a symptom of the the culture and the times. And uh, yeah, I think the widow Tulane is is a good a good choice because of how she is sort of the the other side of of what of Mary Kate. Like she completes that the 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 before the power the air quotes powerless woman in the eyes of the this the society and all that because she doesn't have the dowry. Not that. It's a powerful performance. And the widow Tulane kind of being more, more on even keel with the men of the town, being the landover, being the one that sort of decides her own fate as opposed to kind of having it, uh, having to get permission for what she's going to do with her life from uh, from her older brother. Yeah, it's a great performance. I really love it. I, you know, we spoke about this before, but the side characters really shine mm-hmm. here. There's not a weak link in the entire cast. Yeah, and I think without that, Without that, you know, that uh, support throughout, I think it, it, the movie would, the, the movie is so focused on creating this community, this culture, you need those people to fill it out to make it feel real and tangible, and to set the context for everything that all the drama with with uh, Mary Kate and with Sean. And I think that the, the film does a really well, a really great job at pulling that off extremely well and, and making it, you know, having the audience to sort of buying into the fact that this is the reality that Mary Kate is sort of living in and how, you know, her empathize with her search to try and liberate herself from that. 
So, Caitlin, is there anything about The Quiet Man we haven't talked about that you wanted to make sure we covered before we start wrapping up? I think you hit the highlights. (laughs) Awesome. Caitlin, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Uh, Absolutely. For my film thoughts, uh, please follow me on Twitter at Kate Does. That's at C-A-I-T Does, D-O-E-S. I'm also on Letterboxd. At, um, under Kate Does Content, so letterbox.com slash Kate Does Content. That's C-A-I-T, Does Content. Honestly, like that's where my casual film thoughts are. If you want to keep up with my work, I really appreciate it. Uh, talk movies with me. I love doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're really active on Twitter. I'm actually really impressed at how much you post on there. I, I'm really not I'm really not as active on there as I'd like to be. So whenever I see people like you posting a lot on social media, I'm like, I need to step up my game and and really kind of (laughs) put more social media content out there. It's very easy when your schedule has opened up to the degree that. Yeah, I understand that. Um, Well, thank you so much for, you know, not only coming on the show, but also bringing, you know, bringing the quiet man to the table Uh, that, like I said, I hadn't seen this film and, and, you know, I think it's, it's definitely one that, I could see sort of slipping through the cracks of people who are watching, you know, old John Wayne, John Ford movies, you know, of course they gravitate towards the, all the Westerns. And I think this is kind of a, a nice, uh, not too nice like the, like the review, but uh, I think this is a nice break from that and, and an interesting change of pace for both the director and his star. And uh, it was just really, it was a really lovely movie and, and uh, very, as we said, well-produced and uh, Marina Hera is, is completely delightful and charming in this as well. So thank you again for bringing the quiet man here. And we'll definitely have to have you back on uh, to talk about something else uh, sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and sharing my favorite movie with me. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. That was a little bit of the trailer for The Quiet Man from. You have to play the video, The Quiet oh. Man on the Fire TV. Uh oh. My, oh my Echo God. Dot is talking. That's weird. <laughs> that has never happened before. I didn't say Alexa or anything. Go to the Alexa. Shh. Be quiet. Oh, no. Now look what you've done. I know. I caused a whole, I started a whole conversation. <laughs> I unplugged it. It's fine. Um, that's so weird. I, I, I always phrase it that way. Like, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer now, you know. And it has never done that before. It's so strange. Um, Okay, so let's try that again. <laughs> this has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.